Hello, I am Gordon Buchanan and welcome to Beneath the Beobub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. In this series, we're exploring the vital connection between communities and wildlife in conservation projects in Africa and around the world. Today, how are resource rights human rights? In today's episode, I'm joined by a guest whose work in human rights became deeply personal when working with prison inmates in South Africa post-apartheid. This early experience opened her eyes to the cultural exclusion of the Khoisan community. Leslie Janssen realised her indigenous heritage needed representation on the national stage, and this sparked her career in law and defending Indigenous peoples' rights. It's led her into world-changing legal work to defend communities' use of their own resources. Leslie believes that communities in Africa should be given the rights due to them, and that conservation should shift from being militaristic in practice to people-centred and rights-based with a state-supported sustainable use of resources. To heart, this is the way to make sure people and livelihoods are truly at the forefront of challenging climate change and biodiversity threats. I really can't wait to find out more beneath the Beobub. Leslie, I'm speaking to you during stormy Cape Town at the moment. Yes, seems to have calmed down now. Are you from Cape Town originally? Born and bred on the Cape Flats, yes. Firstly, I'd quite like to hear a bit more about how you came to specialise here, because your work in this field is deeply personal. I had a formal, normal, formal training as a lawyer, but I became aware of my community in the new South Africa, the post-apartheid South Africa, not being recognised and not included in the rule of law. And then I wanted to understand how I can help address that injustice. And I, I then landed through a series of events in Arizona, being trained in a master's legal program by Native American scholars. It's one of the foremost programs in Indigenous peoples' rights. And through a series of twists and turns in life, I landed a job in Cape Town, where I joined a team of environmental lawyers looking at resource rights and communities that are stewarding the natural environment as a way of life and how to protect it. And that was my sort of interface, human rights and environmental law much more. And I've been doing that for about 10 years with an organization called Natural Justice. That then led me to Resource Africa, where I became much more aware of and exposed to communities living specifically with wildlife and their particular challenges. And how would you describe the communities that you're working with at present? They are our frontline conservationists. These are communities that are conserving our natural environment. They specifically live with wildlife and the sustainable use of wildlife that has a place in their lives. Not only are they hunting, sustainable use of wildlife through hunting is it a traditional way of living. It has a long tradition and history in Africa, but also in these communities. And so the issue then later of hunting through these hunting concessions is just the way that they've adapted to a culture of hunting that they already know. And so the communities that we're supporting, it's the communities that are that's in that world where they 
are conserving, managing the natural environment, including wildlife. They are in partnership with our governments. They are very involved around this whole co-management also within our national parks, within communal land areas. So it is a community that is looking after a critical component of our biodiversity. And there's hard science showing that it's working in Southern Africa because there is a support in terms of policy from Southern African governments supporting this community's way of life. And so hunting contributes to that. And of course, those are ways of life that date back thousands and thousands. Of, well, for the history of, of humanity, people have been living in Africa living in those ways, exploiting or using natural resources. With the communities that you're working with, us, is it just Khoisan or is it across different ethnicities? Now, I'm personally from the Khoisan community and I was working with them quite intensely the last 10 years. But the communities with Natural Resource Africa is currently supporting and has a history with is not specifically Khoisan, it's it's indigenous and local communities. It's a range of communities within Southern Africa that's living with wildlife mm-hmm. and other natural resources. Could you describe who the Khoisan are? I think people generally think of Africa and there's kind of, I suppose, different people have different looks. But I think when it comes, I spent time working in Botswana with the San people there. So I have spent time living with people. So I know about those communities a little bit. But for those that don't know, could you describe the Khoisan and who they are and where they came from? Well, the the Khoisan is a term that was not really how they want to be characterized, but it's also a living conversation. It's evolving all the time, but it basically comprises the Khoi and the San. The San being your hunter-gatherer communities, and then your Khoi Khoi communities are your nomadic pastoralists. But there's more linkages than differences because of the geographics, the history, language, and so on. But this is a community that has inhabited Southern Africa for millennia. And their footprint is very well documented in rock art. Amongst others, I call that their title deeds. Basically, linking it to hunting, Gordon, I was recently in the Southern Cape. And now I I engage the communities much more from a hunting perspective, which wasn't my orientation previously. And I was talking to one of the elders around hunting because he speaks on the radio. I just engage them around the conversation to understand how they view it. He brings out a picture of the Khoisan having documented their relationship with hunting. And I was just blown away. I'm from who are not living with wildlife, but the kind of authority they had to the connection of wildlife and hunting being a practice that is integral to them. I was just blown away by it. Yeah, in the time that I spent in Botswana with the San community there, we were out in a wild part of Africa and I had heard a lot about their tracking skills particularly. We were making a wildlife documentary and I thought, okay, I can do a little bit of tracking. And I thought, well, we'll see how good these guys are. And it was breathtaking. It was almost supernatural the way that they could read not even the faintest signs. They weren't looking at branches broken or footprints. They were looking at tiny disturbed pebbles. And we were following a, a kudu for about two hours. And, and Yotama was the, he was the sort of head guy. And he was saying, no, we're still on it. And I couldn't see, I could not see anything that they were reading. And sure enough, two hours later, we came across this kudu that he knew was there 
the whole time. It was just, you realise that there's a relationship that is very deep and very connected. You're reminding me of a story when I was in Babuatua National Park with a son living uh, what was formerly the Caprivi Strip in Namibia. One night we I was deep in Babuatua National Park with a sun community. It was a sense of safety I felt walking at night in a national park with the sun. No guns, no vehicles. It was a safety I cannot explain. The next day I was driving in the SUV with all of the technology and all of the gadgets, and then the elephants chased us and we nearly got killed. So, um, touche. <laughs> what I learned on that trip was a kind of real, it was a lesson in trust. I was living in a tiny little thatched hut. I mean, hut is actually quite a grand description. If anyone, you know, the three little story of the three little pigs and they make a straw hut and the wolf blows it. It was basically that. And I was sleeping in there. There was six of us, so five sand guys and then and me. And there was lions marauding around outside. But I felt absolutely, very, very quickly, I, I sort of learned to trust these people and in their knowledge. And I was able to do something that previously, no, no way would I have been wandering about a wild part of Africa with, with lions around. And eventually we partook in the kill of a lion kill. And with these men, we walked forward to the lion and sort of made it move away from the, the kill and took just a small part of that. And then we went back to the little settlement and that was our dinner for the day. It was, it was the most magical experience I think that I've ever had in, in Africa. I was interested when you said that you were involved with native scholars from America. What was that like from your kind of ethnic perspective? I'm part of the community that was labelled coloured. That was our assimilation that we went through, that forced labelling. And so we were in this journey of discovering who we were because we knew we were not coloured, but we were also not told who we were because of what has happened historically. And so for me to go over to Arizona to be embedded in a master's program, particularly designed just to help you specialize in rights that actually protects where I'm from and the struggles we're enduring, it was mind-blowing. And I didn't take a second for granted. There's a lot of stories I can tell around it, but I think it's something I, I absolutely treasure. How would a five-year-old describe the job that you do? Basically, communities that are involved in, in community conservation, we ensure that the rights and the policy spaces protects what they are doing because they are, through conservation, rendering a service to our biodiversity. And we need to look at how the different rights and policy spaces protects that way of life. And that service, how would you describe that? What is the service that they, they're providing? Because it's an interesting way to look at it. That service has been characterized recently by the African Commission. They adopted a seminal resolution where that resolution affirms the rights of African rural communities to conserve, manage, use their natural resources. They have the right to it. State actors and non-state actors have a responsibility to protect and affirm those rights. Mm -hmm. But the driving force for you in the work that you're doing now and across your career has been human rights. Yeah, the journey has been human rights. I think self-determination, uh, having been part of apartheid or having seen my parents fight against apartheid. So it's been always the right to self-determination. 
And then at 1994, experiencing the betrayal to understand that right to self-determination is there for others, not for you. And then you have to find your way back to the table. I like to speak in metaphors. So it's kind of finding our way back to the table. And so finding the way back to the table, Indigenous people's rights was a way to do it. And then in discovering Indigenous people's rights, I actually discovered that it's in the Africa context, it makes better sense to do it through resource rights rather than human rights, because it's a conversation that won't get you too far. But talk conservation in the African context, you get much further. And so that has opened up for at least the communities that I'm from when I started, rights to get us at the table. And I suppose this is not something new. That's not, it's not really giving rights, it's giving those rights back because those were the, the rights that they had, you know, sort of pre-colonial era. I like how you think, Gordon, because I often, when I speak to communities, I say that the church, the state, they are the registered owners. You are the lawful owners. We just need to let the court and others discover that, but spot on, yeah. And so when you were saying about those sort of rights were not available to you, were you talking about that from your ethnic group or your ethnic origins? Or yeah, basically. We are in South Africa, we're identified. One of the means is through language, through culture, and all of those markers that identifies your presence and your rights, we were not part of it. So we were not constitutionally recognized and included. In terms of our language, in terms of our culture, in terms of our land loss, in terms of our cultural identity, all of those aspects. I think that's sort of across the world. This is not unique to South Africa. I think there's a lot of complexity around cultural identity. I'm Scottish, I identify as being a Scottish person before being British. But really, if I compare myself to people living an hour and a half south in England or in Wales and in Ireland, there's not that many differences. But of course, I think it's particularly complicated in places like South Africa because you do have marginalised communities who almost believe to be extinct, so their views are just not being represented. In studying Indigenous people's rights, I came to discover that one of the key origins of it is really land use because at the time of colonialism, the San and the Khoi communities and also other Indigenous communities in Africa which would be your hunter-gatherers, mostly, and your nomadic pastoralists, their way of land use was not seen as a productive, valid way of using the land. And the sedentary way of using land was viewed as, no, that's a productive way of using land. And so that investment in those communities using the land in that way has caused them to be strengthened politically. And then through indirect rule, they became the leaders, they set the political agenda. Coming to post-colonial era, all of development is conceptualized through those communities' priorities, ways of life, land uses. So when you speak about indigenous peoples in Africa, it's really communities that has land uses that are hunter-gatherers and your nomadic pastoralists. Because the development policies conceptualized doesn't include their form of land uses. And that's causing the exclusions in, in the Africa context. But it seems as if, you know, we're all kind of the same. But I would go anywhere in the world. I can look at a picture and I would know exactly that's my people from my community. Mm -hmm. Something I can't explain. 
but I will just know. I've got a whole range of photos from my time there and they're just incredibly beautiful people, but just very, you realize that in their sort of physical characteristics, there is that sort of template. You can see people that look, they can look quite East Asian. There's some people that can look almost European. So there's a very visible difference physically. So in those communities, the types of sort of natural resources or, or wild resources that they are currently utilizing, what actually are they? Um, a lot of it is your big five species, your land, your lions, elephants, and so on. But there's also your plants. There's also your water sources. Yeah, it's a range of things. But obviously, where the benefits are deriving from is mostly in terms of your hunting concessions. But now also, as international treaties are coming in place, such as Nagoya Protocol and others, I think plants is going to come even more to the fore because there's a lot of knowledge, traditional knowledge that's, that's in there. Actually, if you can explain a little bit more about the Nagoya Protocol, because that was quite significant. Is that right? It was 1.5% was awarded to the Khoisan people. Was it the profits or the rights to access wildland? Now, there's two bases in which you enjoy benefits. One is providing access to the resource, harvesting it. And the second basis would be where your traditional knowledge is used in any sort of commercialization. And so the Roybos case was on the basis of the knowledge being used for commercialization. And so it's at the level of the value chain, the agreement is with the processes because it was the most narrow point of the value chain. And so the contract was between 11 processes and representing the industry, the rooibos industry, and the communities. And that 1.5% is basically the purchase price of the processes from the farmers. And it's the overall price, the 1.5 comes off that. They call it the gate price. That is really quite significant. I mean, 1.5% seems quite low, but given prior to that, presumably those communities at zero right and zero benefit. No, and the thing is, the laws doesn't work retroactively. So from the time the agreement is concluded, you know, that's when they have the right to benefit from it. So we wanted to make sure that they don't lose any benefits any longer. We don't feel it was the best deal, but it was a good start. And with that particular deal, how was that received by communities? Did they feel empowered or were they feeling, okay, this 1.5 isn't enough? It says, Facebook says it's complicated. Basically, you know, a lot of communities felt saying, making claims they're not included. Consultation is always complicated. How much do you consult? It's a whole lot of communities nationally. And so that was a complex process. And I think leading up to it, there was a lot of controversy. But now that there's a biocultural community protocol that was developed as part of the process, which really publishes every single aspect of the deal, so to speak, and where communities fits in. And now communities appreciate and understand the fullness of the process. So it has shifted, Gordon. Yeah. Roy Boss is a global product of if I open my kitchen cupboard, there's a half empty packet. I obviously knew that it came from Southern Africa, but that is really uplifting to hear that actually the people that are due those benefits are, are starting to receive them. We'll be back with Leslie in just a moment. But in the meantime, let's hear a little bit more about community driven conservation projects in action in northern Botswana. 
Ponaso Shamukuni is the chairperson at Chobe Enclave Conservation Trust. He explained how hunting quotas have benefited the community at Chobe. Conservation doesn't come cheap. Hunting was burned in Botswana in 2014. We saw how our trust struggled after the hunting ban. And immediately when the, the hunting ban was lifted in 2019-2020, I want to proudly say that in just one quota that we sold, our trust managed to make an income of about 5.6 million within a short period of time. We were not spared by the pandemic. It has affected the economy of our trust. It affected our budget. So if it wasn't for that 5.6 million that we got from hunting, I tell you, we could be struggling as a trust. It is very, very important that these hunting quotas should be utilized by the community for the benefit of our people. Moses Sinchembe is the general manager at Chobe Enclave Conservation Trust. He says that money from hunting tourism can be used to support and diversify local economies and needs, even building a mill for grinding sorghum and maize. Our people decided to diversify, use that money for many projects. When your income is diversified, should anything hit, you know, the economic shocks, you are able to withstand. Our people travel long distances for grinding to the finished product. We package sorghum to the end product, and then we sell to general dealers within the Chobe enclave and also across the border or neighboring countries. We also have general dealers. Our people used to travel long distances to meet their basic needs. The trust felt the money could be used to build those general dealers so that they don't have to go far to get those basic necessities. The trust has eight tractors. We use these tractors for plowing for our people. Every village has got the sect tractors. The main aim is so that there's food security within the Chobe enclave. Income that was generated out of the hunting was put to use to start the brick molding project within those villages. They are buying bricks to build permanent structures. In addition to that, the trust has been able to provide a minibus to take children to school and two lodges and a bush camp for ecotourism built out of the hunting income. We have two lodges. These are upmarket lodges, the Ngoma Safari Lodge and as well as the Linyanti Bush Camp. These are the lodges that were built out of the hunting income. This trust has employed 32 permanent employees and I'm very proud to be a member of the Chobe Enclave community. Thank you very much to the Safari Club International Foundation for that footage. Let's continue the conversation with Leslie. Has your role changed since you've been working with Resource Africa? Well, previously with the organization I was with, the geographical focus is the same. And it was also very much resource rights, but not wildlife. Wildlife was a new focus for me, but the concept of resource rights very much remains the same, yeah? And for each community's relationship to the different sectors does change, 
But in essence, it's all about how do you secure, affirm, protect, and benefit from those resources and conserve it. So there's many similarities, but there's also some differences, yeah. And the work that you're currently doing, if you were to upscale that, is it a question of, is it funding? Is it manpower? Is it sort of having better relationship with those communities? What would make a sort of big leap forward for you currently? There's a lot happening on the ground. The upscaling remains strengthening the local initiatives and for there to be the even greater support to ensure that there's capacity building, there's support, there's funding, there's a resource flow to that. I think that's absolutely vital. Mm. I think also a strategic upscale would be a bigger strategic collaboration of communications of allies in the sector of sustainable use of wildlife globally, because in terms of the animal rights movements and people that are against the issue of sustainable use of wildlife, they are running a pretty massive campaign. And so the communities are up against something exceptionally big. And so I think just how we continuously can take communications to whatever bigger level remains. Yeah, well, that's that's the whole purpose of this podcast is I think is to shine a light on these complicated issues and actually to hear the voices that are often marginalised because where I live in the the global north it's the loudest voice that gets heard most often and when it comes to particularly hunting there's such a polarising issue and a lot of it is born out of ignorance a lot of people just don't understand the, the fact that the importance of hunting how it can support communities And fundamentally, that is a traditional way of life. Yeah, I think there is of that huge, huge gap in in knowledge and understanding that hopefully you're helping us readdress. (laughs) No, thank you for your role. Also, I think every bit will assist this struggle that these communities are finding them in. The threats are real, very serious and well-organised. If at the end of the day and you're ready to retire for the evening, what can you feel proud about? What are you most happy of and what's working well for you? It's always meaningful to tie back what you're doing to the purpose, to the meaning of it all. And it is about every piece we're doing is about strengthening resource rights and ensuring that rural communities in Africa have a say to benefit and use their wildlife. So for me, it's about not losing sight of that and knowing that everything that seems tedious leads up to the bigger goal ultimately. Mm -hmm. And across your career, you've obviously been working incredibly closely with those communities and there will be the obvious predictable benefits and improvement in lives. But has there been anything that has help the people you represent that you couldn't have predicted or that was unexpected? If I go back to take a bit of a longer look, I would say communities were, there was quite a few outliers. And I think the basis that we've been able to lay with the work, communities have interpreted in new ways. And that's been really interesting because what's happening around land in South Africa currently the indigenous communities are taking to new levels and it's exciting to see how they're making sense of, of these issues. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's wonderful that people being, if they're not at the table, at least there's somebody at the table representing them and particularly in communities where they simply haven't had 
a voice for such a long time. And in the lifetime of all of these communities, even the oldest members within these communities will not remember a time when their voices were heard in a way that they are now. So that is incredible. I want to understand a little bit more about the details of the community-based natural resources programme. So what does it look like in terms of people's lives and how it connects with the sustainable use of wildlife and wild resources in South Africa? South Africa is complex. The CBNRM programme in South Africa doesn't quite look as it does in the rest of Southern Africa, just because of our spatial organization of land. Historically, we had 13% of the country's population on 87% of the land, and 87% of the population moved to 13% of the land. And so we're still dealing with the spatial legacy of that. And so communities are very much, even within what is today the communal land areas, it's only very specific spaces that host wildlife, which would be, amongst others, your Limpopo area. And a lot of the commercial farming is hosting what would be our hunting activities, commercial activities. And so in South Africa, CBNRM for communities remains an ongoing struggle. It remains a struggle for access to those resources. It remains a struggle even to be identified as legitimately having a right to it. Yeah, that is still very much a a complex issue. So at a very high political level, CBNRM are still having to, to penetrate down into this issue, whereas in the rest of Southern Africa, communities and the land-based culture is quite clear and they have closer connections living with wildlife. So if you just stumbled across a time machine and went back and spoke to a 15-year-old Leslie, would she be surprised at how your life has turned out and the work that you do? She would be I wouldn't want to uh, put her through it. I don't want to tell her what's awaiting her, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, when you were a, a young girl, what sort of did you have, what was your first career's ambition? Because hopefully there are lots of young people that say that they want to be involved in human rights, but it's sort of certainly not the first sort of thing that springs to mind for a lot of young people. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to really bore you. I knew from about the age of eight that I wanted to be a lawyer. So it was very clear cut for me. And in fact, it was Matlock that inspired me. He was this old white criminal lawyer who solved all these cases. And he sort of inspired me weirdly to become a lawyer until I got to university. Then I didn't want to be a lawyer and I dropped out. And then I had to figure out what I want to do with my life. And then I landed where I was giving classes in prison with inmates. Then I became aware of what's going on in South Africa that led me back to law. So that little girl that was eight, seven, that knew she needed to be law, I think it, it became full circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're obviously the exception to the rule at that age, knowing that you want to work in this field is really quite remarkable. I read that your father was a prison guard. Was that an influence, realising there were people in jail that needed that sort of needed representation? Mm. Well, it's interesting. There's an interesting story there that I will try to tell quickly. But basically, the story leading to New York, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous People. And there he happened to get a pamphlet talking about the University of Arizona. And he brought the pamphlet to me in Cape Town 
because I had then trying to apply for masters to understand how indigenous people's rights work in South Africa, because I was on this mission that I want to be a lawyer to assist. And uh, the university in South Africa, one of the top constitutional experts took a good chunk of 30 minutes to explain to me that these rights don't apply to my community. These rights don't apply. He just basically dissuaded me from taking on this issue. I was so confused. And then my father came from New York with this pamphlet. And then I said, okay, let me write. There's a university in Arizona training lawyers. Let me find out what's going on. And they wrote back to me. I got the bursary and the rest is history. I think it's these events in life or things that happen to you and the people that you meet and the experiences in life that can just sort of really set you in a direction and keep you on track. And how you envisage your career path from now, I shouldn't call it a career path because it is a way of, of life. It seems to be more of a calling than a, a choice of occupation. How would you like to see things going over the next 20 years in your work? <laughs> 20 years. I think being at NGOs so long is not a healthy thing. But I would have firstly wanted to leave a good legacy with the communities living with wildlife. They are in a real fight. I definitely would like to help shift that needle. And I think winning the fight around sustainable use of wildlife is going to win a much bigger fight of Africans having the right to have a say about what is theirs. And so for me, that would be important to meaningfully have contributed to that. And then I also think the issue of land rights is something that always pulls my heart. I also try to see how I also can assist with possible. So that is also something that I do want to explore further, going further down the line. The issue of land ownership the world over is a kind of fairly nebulous notion really when you think about it and Scotland is very good in that it has got a sort of almost access all areas so you can go there's no rights of trespass laws but certainly kind of to the fact that individuals can claim huge areas of land I always struggle with that because at one point I belonged to the planet it didn't belong to individuals and it's sort of yeah to try and unpick that notion of of land ownership is is very difficult but I suppose in a, in a southern African context when you have people that are so connected to the land that there was no notion of ownership traditionally that was their way of life and their way to sort of provide for themselves and their families no i mean i think you make a good point gordon and i think that's exactly what pulls at me that i think i have to have to contribute to this conversation is the fact that coming at land rights from very much a biocultural perspective where we challenge the notion of property, not just where individual private property is the only valid form of land use, but that these other ways of being on the land is also seen as valid uses, and that we look at property ownership through the lens of indigenous cosmologies and how they were on the land. I think that is for South Africa, we fundamentally still need to have a conversation around sharing, not just sharing between particular groupings, even amongst ourselves as African communities. How do we share? How do we share as a country? How do we share without having to hurt others? Mm -hmm. How do we share where we all you know, can enjoy and have a quality life? 
but for doing it responsibly. And I think that is a careful process that needs to be handled carefully because I'm not sure, you know, we're also struggling with who do we need to be for such a process. A lot is expected of you to be a particular person in that. And I think biocultural rights has a lot to offer to contribute to exactly challenging this notion of property. There's a new term that you just said, indigenous cosmologies. What does that what does that mean? It's basically just the worldview of indigenous people, you know, where as you said now, it's not about me owning the land for myself, but it's about us, the village, us looking, stewarding together what has been left by others for us and how do we leave this for the future. And that's a very unique way of looking at resources, the I versus the us, and that custodianship for the future is is what it's all about. Yeah, I think we are at a really interesting, in many ways, an exciting time because there are steps, some of them are small steps being made for people to live in a fairer world. And it's about, you know, we're thinking more about the future and the sustainability of the planet. And I think, you know, that's of you cannot remove human beings from that equation of conservation. You can't deal with conservation without dealing with people in those communities. There's not enough wild worlds left to just let it be. Leslie, thank you so much. The work that you do is obviously very important, but it's it's incredible. You're a very inspiring and uplifting person. You've helped us unpack these kind of quite complex issues and make sense of these legal protocols that are so important in this conversation. Thank you so much. It was nice meeting you too, Gordon. When people come to Africa, especially Southern Africa, we leave a little bit of magic in you. And I think I see it in you. Oh, 100%. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Take care, everyone. Bye. That really was a fascinating chat with Leslie. I hope that this has helped you reflect upon the provenance of products you might be using on a daily basis and how we can support the deep cultural rights and knowledge of the communities which have been the stewards of wildlife for generations. It's certainly given me pause for thought. If you'd like to find out more about the work of Resource Africa, you can find links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international collaborations. If you'd like to listen to the next episode, please follow or subscribe on your favourite app. If you would like to share this podcast, and I strongly suggest you do, please do so with the hashtag Beneath the Beabub on social media. As you know, Beabub is spelt B-A-O-B-A-B. Positive dialogue, sharing ideas. This can happen anytime, any place, anywhere. So why don't you start a conversation with a friend, a family member, a neighbour, or even a complete stranger. Action starts with talk. I'm Gordon Buchanan, and I hope you'll join me next time beneath the Beobab. The Beobab.